Good morning. My name is David. I am an assisting priest here at Incarnation. Uh, thank you for being with us today. I would also like to thank our rector, the Reverend Amy Rowe, for inviting me to preach on 1 Timothy 2.8 <laughs> on the entirely innocent and uncontested subject of women's roles in ministry. I wish I could assure you that in the span of 15 minutes or so, we should be able to resolve any reservations or unanswered questions you may have but sadly, we only have 14 minutes. <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, this reading from 1 Timothy presents us with an exciting opportunity to engage with Scripture on a deeper, nuanced level, on a text that may be hard for some to swallow, or for others, so easy to swallow that there's really nothing new to learn from it. Some of the issues raised when discussing the role of women in the church include the following. Uh, first, what do we do with parts of the Bible that seem to stand in tension with other parts of the Bible? Or even more pointedly, what do we do when Paul teaches one thing that doesn't seem to square with other things that Paul teaches? Secondly, are some parts of the Bible of enduring significance, but there might be others that are bound up with the culture they came from? What do we do with the cultural context of the Bible? Third. Do some teachings carry more weight than others? Are some teachings more central and others more peripheral? Fourth, when Paul provides an argument to back up his instructions, what happens if that argument doesn't feel very convincing for the conclusion he reaches? In the end, what I offer in response to these questions is not a comprehensive theology of women's ordination to holy orders, a task to which others, I think, are better suited than I. But what I do offer is an interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 2 that honors the text as God's word and situates it in the broader scope of God's plan of salvation, working itself out through history. Thus understood, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 represents what I would call an earlier stage of God's work in the church, a starting point, not an end point. In other words, you could say I'm something of a cessationist when it comes to a male-only clergy. I'm borrowing the word cessationist from an entirely different debate. That's the debate about spiritual gifts and whether tongues and prophecy continue from the age of the apostles to today or if they ceased when the apostles died. I am not a cessationist in that sense of the word. <laughs> However, I do think the concept can be useful. What God does in one stage of redemptive history is not necessarily the same for later stages. This is not a simplistic times of change that was then, this is now, our culture is superior, their culture inferior. I'm not doing that, even though cultural change does matter. Rather, what I am saying is that these different stages of salvation history are discerned from the scriptures themselves. So, our starting point for understanding 1 Timothy is what is the context of Paul's thought in general? Our path to better understanding of God's place for women in ministry today begins with this apparent tension in Paul. On the one hand, central to his gospel preaching was the message enshrined in Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When theologians discuss that verse, they say Paul is describing an eschatological reality. Now what that means 
is that Paul is describing the end point of history, the final, the finality of God's plan, where he is heading with the world in general. It, has, it is an age that has already started to dawn, and the new age that God has inaugurated by raising Jesus from the dead. It is the age of the spirit, the age of faith, of new life, and it is most fully realized in a new community, the church. The old age, the age of flesh, sin, death, it still persists out in the world, though it will soon be fully overcome by the new. If this verse in Galatians seems to be doing a lot of heavy lifting, theologically speaking, that's because it serves as a linchpin for Paul's argument there. Indeed, the phrasing and function of that verse has led many scholars to believe it to be a baptismal formula. These were the words that were spoken when one was baptized into Paul's churches. This vision of the church is you know, very clearly egalitarian, radically so by ancient Mediterranean standards. When they were baptized, Jews and Greeks, masters and slaves, men and women, died to their old identities. They now all stand on equal footing before God in Christ. Lived out to the fullest, it would represent a sharp break with the social order. But here in 1 Timothy, and indeed elsewhere in Paul's writings, he appears to, at times, reinforce the reigning social order, and not just outside the church, but within it. These two sides of the apostle are not easy to square. In numerous places, we can see Paul becoming more circumspect about social change when he's concerned that it destabilizes the Christian community and draws reproach from outsiders. We must remember that these things were written in what sociologists call an honor and shame culture. The church faced many headwinds in Paul's day, coming from both internal division and external persecution. Maintaining the good name of the Christian community was at times a matter even of life and death. But that still leaves Galatians 3.28. As the pressures in and against the church have changed over many centuries, a space has opened up for the reality of Galatians 3.28 to break into the present even further. By ordaining women to teaching and leadership roles in the church, the church testifies to its ultimate hope in redemption in Jesus Christ, to a reality in which slaves and slaveholders, men and women, Jews and Greeks, are equal on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what are some of the internal indicators that the teaching in 1 Timothy is, in principle, provisional and temporary? We need to deal with more cultural context surrounding 1 Timothy, as well as the situation it is responding to, and next, determine what significance that context has for how we understand Paul's words here. We know from 1 Corinthians 11.5 that women were praying and prophesying in church, out loud, Prophecy was now closely associated with the function of preaching, too. That's probably why it caused controversy for women to do it. So we know for a fact that it was happening. And we have to consider that in Greek, the word translated as church, ekklesia, was, an, was a very common word. It simply meant assembly. Now, in the Greek and Roman world, the public assembly was widely considered the domain of men. 
Thus, it was something of a spectacle for women to be praying and prophesying in the Christian assembly or church. Now, it is hard to know exactly what the presenting issue was in the Ephesian church where Timothy is being sent. But we know from other chapters that false teaching was afoot. Rivalry between ambitious authority figures in the church led to quarreling and eventually a leadership crisis. Whatever else was involved, um, we see in later chapters in 1 Timothy, um, we can see that funds that were allocated to the poor, especially indigent widows, were being misappropriated. The well-to-do, chapter, the well-to-do widows in chapter 5 seem to have been involved, um, perhaps not in a good way, perhaps by backing a faction that Paul saw as problematic. Given the external influence of prevailing cultural norms, on the one hand, an internal conflict threatening the peace and integrity of the church on the other, it's not at all surprising to find Paul seeking to establish order and extinguish scandal in a way that made sense to him and those around him. All right, now we move to verse 11. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. It is interesting how that verse is phrased. Paul does not present the teaching here as a command from on high. And we must remember his immediate addressee is his envoy, Timothy. Thus, Paul is re- instructing his representative through personal example. He approaches it with the tone of, well, here's how I do it. I do not think that this means that we can wave away everything that follows as a one-off situation. Paul is exercising his apostolic prerogative. An apostle is endowed with the authority of the one who sent him. Hence, his written words do have canonical force, but even so. Paul often makes a distinction that he gives certain instructions so there might be good order within the churches. These matters do not carry the same weight as other issues he addresses, particularly when he proclaims the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ or when he refutes, let's say, false teaching. While poor church order is often associated with false teaching, they are not identical. While the majority of biblical interpreters for most of church history have taken these verses to mean that women should not have a public teaching office in the church, many have nevertheless acknowledged that the specifics of church order are second-order concerns. What is important is that there be order. That distinction takes on great importance in the Reformation era, not least in the English Reformation from which Anglicanism is born. There were intense debates over which matters in the church were normative and which ones were considered um, the domain for freedom of conscience. The things necessary for salvation were considered central and non-negotiable. Much, perhaps even most of the practical matters of church order, though they be important, were considered things not strictly necessary for salvation. This category came to be known as the adiaphora, which is Greek for indifferent things. Some Reformation theologians even explicitly cited this teaching from Paul in 1 Timothy, that women be silent, as belonging to the latter category. To be sure, in the 16th century, none of the theologians we're talking about had any intention of ordaining women to the priesthood. Their cultural assumptions about gender roles did not encourage them to reform this particular aspect of church order. But the principle was laid. 
The Bible itself, and Paul most of all, seems to distinguish between essential matters of doctrine and practice on the one hand and contingent instructions for church governance. Lastly, I would argue that Paul's rationale for asserting male leadership in the Ephesian church contains within them the seeds for change. I will say up front that Paul himself was likely not aware of the full implications of what he was saying, which as a rule is true for all the biblical writers. That is what it means for the Bible to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and not just written by human beings. What matters is what the text says, because it is through the text that God speaks. And just to make sure you know I'm not just making stuff up, I will appeal to the long history of biblical interpretation on the following verses. The church has sensed for a long time that something was off in the rationale supporting women's silence and submission in the church. And I would argue that they are picking up, perhaps unbeknownst to them, on those seeds for change. First, when Paul writes that Adam was formed first, then the woman, interpreters thought that was a little bit of a weird argument. In a very erudite chapter on different approaches to reading this text, um, a scholar named John Thompson points out how many ancient, medieval, and Reformation-era interpreters found Adam was formed first to be a puzzling thing to say. At first glance, verse 13 looks like a simple appeal to the sequence of creation. Thompson writes, Adam was formed first, so Adam and all men should be regarded as what? Wiser? Stronger? Just special? Most commentators found that they couldn't take this verse at face value. St. John Chrysostom of the fourth century pointed out that if being formed first made one superior, then wouldn't that make the animals even better than the man? <laughs> Erasmus in the 16th century thought the typical order in the Bible was to save the best for last. After all, humans made in God's image were the crowning achievement of creation at the end of the six days. Luther noted that while authority is given to the firstborn in the Bible, that order is often reversed, and the older will be found to be serving the younger. Other reformers of Luther's day, like John Calvin and Peter Vermigli, said explicitly that they thought this argument in 1 Timothy 2, um, 8 through 15, on Adam being formed first, was not very firm. One even says it is weak, which is why Paul goes on to add others. After all, Jesus came after John the Baptist, and Jesus, it goes without saying, was the greater of the two. I find it very suggestive that past interpreters, who by all means agreed with Paul's conclusion about women's roles in the church, nonetheless sensed something was off about the rationale. The biblical principle that the older shall serve the younger is especially interesting to me to bring up in this context. The Adam was formed first argument leads itself open to future change. Perhaps at the beginning, the older was superior to the younger, but in a Bible where this thing happens all the time, would it be so surprising that in time God would bring equal honor to the one formed later, the woman? Next we have this argument, was Adam deceived? And if he wasn't deceived, isn't that worse?
So many Christian interpreters of past centuries found that that argument also required extra explanation. A face value, of, a face value reading of verse 14 results in a dilemma. If Adam was in fact deceived, that seems to contradict what Paul's saying here, but if Adam wasn't deceived, then isn't it worse that he deliberately disobeyed God's command? Biblical interpreters thus either had to explain how Adam was less deceived than Eve, or that Eve was deceived by a serpent, which is worse for some reason, but Adam was deceived by his wife, or that even if Adam bore greater responsibility, he was still more fit for leadership. Calvin even pointed out how in Romans 5.12, Paul emphasizes strongly that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, which corresponds to the world's redemption through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Bible puts responsibility for the fall of humanity on the man. Again, this is not to say that the church fathers or the reformers were proto-feminists in the modern sense, but I think gaining some historical perspective in how faithful Christians read this text help us see that perhaps the stimulus for changes in church order may not be an accommodation to modern sensibilities. There's grounds for thinking that the biblical basis for a male-only clergy was always unstable. And last but not least, Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing, or other translations, through childbirth. This is perhaps the most provocative point the apostle makes in this entire argument. Is he really suggesting that women can redeem themselves from the taint of Eve's transgression by making babies? Biblical interpreters from ancient times to today have by and large answered that question with a decisive no. First off, the notion of salvation through childbirth will strike you as odd indeed if you've read what Paul himself has to say about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. There, he presents his own condition of celibacy as the superior way of serving God. The church fathers really ran with this idea and actively encouraged men and women to commit themselves to service to the Lord through a celibate life, not through having children. That was a key pillar of monasticism. Fun little story, St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan in the late 4th century, famously encouraged the young women of noble families in Milan to swear off marriage and remain virgins consecrated to the Lord. We have records of those noble families begging Ambrose to stop, as a great deal of those young women were eagerly taking him up on it and thus ruined their father's ambitions for their accumulation of wealth and preserving their wealth through family inheritance. There is thus a long tradition of reading 1 Timothy 2 figuratively. In the period of the Reformation, a flat, literal reading of verse 14 did not square up well with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Indeed, it is hard to imagine Paul's meaning to say that men are saved by grace through faith and that women are saved by grace through faith and also childbirth. What many past interpreters saw in this verse, and I think they are right, is that women and men have in fact been saved by the childbirth. That is to say, the birth of the Messiah. Where Eve disobeyed, Jesus' mother Mary obeyed. As she herself prayed, let it be done to me according to your word. Verse 14 thus alludes to a gospel promise, one that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 
when Eve is assured that her offspring will crush the serpent's head. And God made good on this promise in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I take verses 14 to 15 as a signal. They point us beyond the fairly narrow issue of church order to the redemption of the world by God in Christ through a woman. They are a subtle reminder of the much bigger picture of what God is doing. And that brings us full circle to how the teaching in 1 Timothy 2 relates to the gospel in general. It reminds us to check the provisions we make in the present for church order against the goal to which we're heading, which is the fullness of the reality expressed in Galatians 3.28. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for all are one in Christ. The situation in the church that we can see should increasingly reflect the reality in Christ, which we cannot see. Putting it all together, allowing women to teach and exercise authority in the church moves us forward on the gospel timeline. 1 Timothy 2, not to mention other texts like 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, they represent a starting point on the timeline. And it cannot be taken for granted that these snapshots of church order in the Bible are meant to be static. Indeed, the text of 1 Timothy 2 already contains hints that its instructions are of a provisional nature. They are meant to preserve the internal peace and external reputation of the church at that time. We now live in an era when, in many places, the situation is now the opposite. The church's peace and reputation are no longer served well by an exclusively male clergy. But that cultural shift would mean nothing if it did not help us move forward through the Bible's own, Paul's own, endpoint for redemptive history in which men and women stand equal in the household of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reach out to us through history and that you meet us where we are. You met Paul and his congregations where they were in their time. And through Paul, you gave us enduring teaching inspired by your Holy Spirit that applies as much today as it did then. And God, you also foresee in those scriptures how you will be working, not just then, but you will be with us always to the end of the age. Therefore, God, we pray that you will equip us to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, and that perhaps for some of us with new eyes can be able to appreciate how your gospel works out, not just in the distant future or in an unseen realm, but here on earth, in your visible church. And I pray, God, that you would bless the ministries of women who serve you in this way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.